Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. Hope everyone is staying warm in this uh, brisk weather. Just a reminder, first of all, we have uh, continue to have a number of fantastic programs coming up. We've had a fantastic uh, series of programs already uh, until now. The Shabbos, we have Mort Klein from the Zionist Organization of America, ZOA. Everyone's invited to, uh, to hear him. And uh, next Tuesday night is Tuesday Night Live. Uh, Rabbi Gimpel, who was here, hosts this uh, incredible program. And I think the seats are maybe sold out already. I know they were close. No, they're not. They have 200 seats left. 200 left? Okay. As of a few days ago. I don't know. There's a bus from here, so if you don't have tickets yet, make sure to get them. It's a great, great program taking place in the Broward Theater. It's in the Parker Playhouse. Parker Playhouse. But it's, uh, it's really worthwhile. Make sure you're part of it. It's going to be uh, fantastic. Okay. Parshas Bashalach. Parshas Bashalach. So first of all, help yourself to some coffee or tea, if you like. But uh, we're going to begin with a brief overview of Parshas B'Shalach, and then we're going to get in depth in some of the psukim, with, uh, is our, our goal as a text-based class, to see the commentaries and to see the, uh, the text itself. So, uh, in the end of last week's Parsha, when we left off, the Jewish people, the final uh, of the Makos, of the plagues, had uh, occurred, and uh, Para was finally ready to see the Jewish people leave. They leave. We have the story of the... The Karban Pesach, the Paschal Sacrifice, which is a, we don't have time, it's last week's Pasha, but the fact that the Jewish people were asked to take a deity of the Egyptians and to slaughter it is not coincidental or insignificant. It's an incredible expression of, uh, of affirmation or of participation in their own redemption. And then they, uh, they leave the whole laws of the firstborn. I spoke about last Shabbos, the contrast of the emphasis of our firstborn versus the Egyptian firstborn. The Egyptian firstborn are slaughtered, and in great contradistinction, the parsha, not randomly, not coincidentally, says, Kadeshli Kol Bechor. In contrast, the Jewish firstborn have to be sanctified, have to be consecrated. And I mentioned the uh, interpretation from Rabbi Salavechik that in Egypt, this emphasis on the notion of firstborn is not only the physical firstborn, but the metaphysical, the symbolism of the firstborn. In Egyptian culture, the firstborn represented rights and entitlements, represented power, tyranny, ownership of one's siblings, even of one's own mother. And in Jewish culture, the role of the firstborn is uh, very much the opposite. Responsibility, duty, obligation to take care of the family, to be responsible to the family. And so, when God said the Egyptian firstborn will be slaughtered, and in contradistinction, Kadeshli called Bechor, Jewish firstborn should be sanctified, what he meant is the triumph of the Jewish notion of firstborn over the Egyptian notion of the firstborn. So not only physically, but metaphysically. And that's also the meaning of when God promised Moshe that Bini Bechori Yisrael, my children, the Jewish people, are my Bechor. Which I mentioned, that's troubling. What do you mean? Humanity existed before the Jewish people. We may be a favorite child, a chosen child, even that is not so simple, but it's difficult to argue we're the first child. Humanity existed for many years before the Jewish people were born. So how could God refer Bini Bechori Yisrael, that the Jewish people are my Bechor, are my firstborn, are my eldest? Rabbi Soloveitchik said within his paradigm that the notion of Bechor is a model, a symbol of duty, responsibility, and obligation to take care of one's siblings, to take care of the family after the father, to have that responsibility to the home, then it makes sense, B'ni Bechor Yisrael. God was not saying the Jewish people are my firstborn chronologically. God was saying the Jewish people are my firstborn in terms of responsibility to humanity. Humanity are their siblings. Humanity are God's children in total. But the Jewish people are God's right hand. We have duty, obligation, responsibility, a mandate to be a light onto the nations, to teach the world. And that's what it means, B'ni Bechori Yisrael. That's all last week's Parsha. I just wasn't here last week, so I had to sneak that in. Yeah. That's the whole creation, B'shvel Yisrael. Yes. But now you're already getting into Medrash, you're getting into Zohar. The Zohar says, what? First in thought. I understand. I understand. But that doesn't... So, okay, so metaphysically you could explain that when God says the Jewish people are my Bechor, He means I thought of them before I created anyone else. Good. You're, that's metaphysical. I'm talking about just the text itself. How do you understand the text? We're the firstborn. I mean, just... It's a simple question. God creates all of humanity, then the Jewish people, yet He calls us His firstborn. I understand you're saying, well, He thought of us first. But guess what? If I want to have a son, and I had six daughters first, and then I have that son, just all theoretically, do I, do I say to the son, you're my firstborn? 
Because really, I, I've been wanting to have a boy for a long time. You're my firstborn. <laughs> no, no, no. How will that make the other sisters feel? <laughs> well, that wouldn't be petah for you. Right. So, no. so, so God, you know, so that's in, Rabbi Soloveitchik's interpretation is very beautiful. It gives a lot of symbolism and gives a lot of obligation and responsibility to us, to the Jewish people, to understand our role and our place in the world, our responsibility vis-a-vis our siblings, namely the rest of humanity. That's all last week's Parsha. Brings us to this week's Parsha. Bishalach, page 366. So the Jewish people are leaving. We don't have time. I, was, I don't want to start in the beginning of the Parsha. Oh, there's so much to say. But Bishalach, when Paro sent the nation, it's a very peculiar language. What do you mean, Paro sent the nation? The nation is Paro the one who freed the Jewish people? Did Paro send us? Should be Bishalach Hashem. God sent us. Why Paro? So the commentators explain that Paro came with us. Bishalach means to escort. Why do we have a mitzvah of being malav, of escorting someone from our home? Uh, that's where we learn it from. That's the, pa- the prototype, the paradigm. But why? Why do we have a mitzvah, an obligation to escort someone from our home? You know, you can't sit on the couch and say, Zai gezunt, be well, close the door on your way out. You're supposed to get up, walk someone to the door, and walk them out a few steps. We have a mitzvah of being malav esames. When a person dies, you escort the coffin. That's not a courtesy issue. That person doesn't know. No, they don't know. Okay, they're staying away from the metaphysical. But why do we have an obligation to escort, to be malava? So Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory explained that the notion of escorting is the notion of building a bond, is drawing a bridge. The notion of escorting is saying, I want to savor. I want to savor the relationship. When you take leave of me, I want you to remember me and I want to remember you. So when you escort someone, what you're saying is, we're not going to abruptly end this contact, this meeting, this rendezvous, but we're going to savor. There's going to be a residual effect. I want to continue to draw from the relationship, even after we're no longer physically present with one another. And so I have an obligation, after you visit my home, to escort you out, to send that message. To malaves ames, when you escort somebody who dies, you are sending that message, not only to the deceased, covered ames, but as or more important to ourselves. I want to continue this relationship. I want to continue to draw from the virtue, from the values, from the inspiration of this, uh, the ideals of this individual. So he bishalach the term bishalach really means not to send, but to escort, to take someone out. So what does it mean? Paro sent out the nation. So the Medrash is very negative. And the Medrash says that the Jews may have left Egypt, but Egypt didn't leave the Jews. Bishalach paro means that the Jews took paro with them. They took paro with them. He may have sent them out. He may have freed them. He may have said, be on your way. But they continued to take him with them. And what's the evidence of that? The whole rest of the Parsha. The whole rest of the Parsha. We had better food in Egypt. Why aren't we back in Egypt? This is what you took us here for, to die. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We're this. We're that. The Egyptian culture was so strong, its influence was so strong, that it continued to impact the Jewish people. Bishalach Paro. They took him with them. That's why Vayihi. Vayihi is Lashon Voy. It's Lashon, it's a, it's a negative connotation. Every time you see the term Vayihi in the Torah, in Tanakh, Vayihi implies something negative. So what do you mean Vayihi B'Shalach Paro? It's the greatest thing. After hundreds of years, they were emancipated, they're freed, liberty. What do you mean Vayihi? What's a terrible thing? The terrible thing was B'Shalach Paro. They allowed Paro to escort them. They allowed his ideals, his values, his influence to continue to escort them. And that's why, God couldn't allow them to journey on the path that was too close to Egypt. Why? Because they still were tempted by. They still had a piece of Egypt in them. There's so much more to talk about on that, but that's not our purpose for today. So the route from Israel, here they're traveling. Moshe takes Yosef's bones because he had made a promise. The Jewish people had made a promise to Yosef. They were not going to leave him in Egypt. So they take, Moshe takes Yosef's bones and uh, they travel and the Torah gives us a little bit of the uh, journey, of the itinerary. And the Torah then tells us that a pillar of a cloud led them during the day, a pillar of fire at night. They had this divine protection, divine protection and security, that living in the desert, they didn't need a security force, they didn't need a police force, they didn't need a military. They had the ultimate security, that of God. So why couldn't they go the short way? Oh, why couldn't they go the short way? That's a good question, except I think that gives the answer. They couldn't go the short way, not because of fear of an external enemy. 
but fear of internal desire to return to Egypt. There was an addictive nature. They were addicted to Egyptian culture. And when you try to break someone of their addiction, it's very challenging. So God understood, Ki karovu. they're still too close to it. It was Bishalach Paro. They allowed the, the Paro mentality to escort them. They're too close. You can't take an alcoholic back into a bar to get a glass of water. Ki karofu, it's too close. So it wasn't an external enemy that threatened them because they had the pillar of the cloud, they had the fire. It was the internal enemy that was a challenge to them. Paro has a change of heart. He pursues the Jewish people. B'nai Israel panic. God reassures them. And then, of course, the famous Pasuk on page 370. This is all just for the overview. We have not yet begun. The, um, we haven't started yet. But uh, this is one of my favorite Pesukim in the Torah. When God tells Moshe, what, what are you doing? What are you doing davening? What are you doing davening? Speak to the Jewish people and go. What's the meaning of that? Davening, I thought, has this incredible existential value. Davening is, we can move mountains. Davening is a potent force. Davening can transform HaKadosh Baruch Hu's the divine will. What do you mean God turns to the Jewish people? The image is incredible. You know, they're stuck between a rock and a, the proverbial rock and hard place. The Egyptians pursuing them in the rear. The sea sitting in front of them, right in front of them. Nowhere to turn to. And what do they do? What we would hope anyone with years of Jewish education would do. They open their tehillim, they daven. And what does God say? What are you doing? Close your sitter. Stop davening. Start walking. Start walking. We could talk an hour just on this puzzle. But we won't. But clearly what God is saying, this, this puzzle clearly captures the delicate balance between human initiative and divine providence. The delicate balance between the need to daven to Hashem, to rely on Him, trust, faith, but the balance between that and our efforts, the need to make human efforts. I, I like to interpret the verse, Viso is not God not saying don't daven. It's God saying, I want you to daven in a different way. You see, we daven sometimes with words, and we daven sometimes with actions. If our actions are an expression of arrogance, that we think we are in control of our destiny, that's not davening with actions. But if our actions are, God, I'm going to put my best foot forward, I'm going to do everything in my power, everything I possibly can, but I recognize that it's up to you, then our actions themselves are transformed to be expressions of prayer. So this is the delicate balance. Again, we could speak for an hour, two hours, five hours, about Hashkach versus versus... Um, human initiative versus Ishtadlus, making our effort. But this is God saying, you can't, remember, God had a slave nation. What's the number one characteristic of a slave nation, of a slave people? Passivity. Passivity. Forfeiting control of one's own destiny, conceding it to someone else, and being passive, a spectator to their own life. They're coming right out of Egypt and God has to say to them, don't just look to me like you used to look to your Egyptian master. Don't be a spectator to your own destiny and your own life. Don't be passive to your own ra- reality. Matitakilai, what are you looking at me? What are you looking at me? Yiso, start walking. You can control your destiny. You have to take human initiative. You have to make an effort. That's also a form of prayer. And that will be combined with turning to me and there will be results. But again, that's not uh, our topic for today. Perak is that, that each creation... Each form of creation, whether it's a cloud or, or the grass or, or the dog, are all living and singing their praises right. to God through their actions. Through their actions, exactly, through their actions. I'll say, I'll talk, talk about it in a minute. You know, this week is the Parshas Haman. This, we read the story of the man, the, the man that fell from heaven, that was divinely given to sustain and nourish the Jewish people. So there is a, there is a great Hasidish Rebbe, who, Rav Mendel of Rimanov, who, who said that on the Tuesday of Parsha Saman, you should read Parsha Saman, it's a school of for Parnassah. It's a school of for Parnassah. Mm-hmm. If you read the Parsha Saman, it'll bring you a great livelihood, prosperity, your portfolio will all of a sudden skyrocket, everything will be great. So I tweeted this week, I said, a great school of for Parnassah is having a job. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what was my point? Is that My point was that... Too many of us use these schoolers, we'll talk about it in a moment, as gimmicks. As gimmicks, as shortcuts. And therefore, oh, if I read this Parsha Saman, if I carry this, if I wear that red string, if I do that, then all of a sudden great things are going to happen. No, that's V'yisau. God says human initiative. Make your effort. 
Do your best. Of course in the end it's up to God and God's will. Of course in the end God determines what happens. But V'yisal means use the tools and your skills and the gifts at your disposal that you're blessed with and make your best effort. So of course the sea splits. The sea splits. Water crashes down on the Egyptians. By the way, the sea splits. Was that a miracle? Was that natural or supernatural? We haven't started. We've got to start this class. No, the, it is a machlokas. It's a machlokas Rishonim. It's a debate among the medieval commentaries. This is, again, we could discuss for two or three hours the whole notion of miracles in Judaism. Does Judaism subscribe to miracles? And this is a debate between schools of thought among our medieval commentaries. Some say, absolutely, God suspends nature. He reveals Himself at times and there are incredible miracles. And others say, no. Even these are unusual events. They are statistically rare. But everything can and must be explained through nature. I happened to Google last night. I remember a New York Times article maybe 20 years ago in the science section, maybe less of, of uh, scientists who figured out based on the winds and the waves and the this and the that, how the sea could split, explaining it absolutely natural phenomenon. So I googled it and of course you find all kinds of stuff that explains it. There's a rift, there's a break in the land underneath the sea and it could explain in the moon and the cycle. And, that. and So let me ask you a question. If you read an article or a scientist were to come and to her eloquently and articulately assert compellingly that the sea splitting was a natural event, you have to understand that that night, that day, the wind was going, the moon was this, the wind was that, the waves were this, the thing was that, the earthquake was that, the tornado that, and the sea split. And the sea split. Would that, would that, one second, would that shatter our faith or reinforce it? Reinforce it. That it should have happened exactly as it, as it was needed. You know, there was this um, natural phenomenon. It only happened very rarely. You know, I forgot what it was, but somehow it, it made it possible to do the landing and everything. It was very rare. Because he knew it, he could do it. But right. It was still, uh, you know... Okay, so again, I'm just giving you a lot of things that we're not spending time on today. We, haven't, we, have to start, we have to start this class. But my point is, there's a great debate. The Ramban, the Rambam, there's schools of thought who all weigh in on this important issue, the Ibn Ezra, Rabbein Abachia, on this issue of how we view... Super, the, when the Torah describes supernatural events, are we to assume there was a suspension of the rules of nature and indeed it was a revealed miracle? Or are we to assume, no, this could easily be explained through the natural order, and that's okay. Now, I happen to tend to the second. I like the second. Because, you see, everything that happens has to be, has to be explainable according to the rules of nature. For the following reason. Because if it were impossible to explain within our natural world, it would be irrefutable evidence of God's existence. And there cannot be irrefutable evidence of God's existence because if there was, there would not be free will. And if there was not free will, there would be no purpose to life. The very purpose of our existence is predicated on free will. We make choices, the choices define us. Without free wills, if we were pre-programmed robots with no alternatives, there would be no purpose to our lives, there would be no purpose to existence, there would be no purpose to Torah, which is all about a manual for how to make the right choices, which presume that you have choice, that you have free will. So we live in a world in which God must be concealed, by definition, by definition. And if there were events that we are supposed to believe in our history, that are inexplicable, incomprehensible according to the rules of, nat- rules of nature and science, then that would mean that it's irrefutable God exists. And if it's irrefutable, if you can't deny that God exists, then you have no free will. If you can't uh, challenge, you can't, irrefutable means you can't argue with it. It's one position. So therefore, it, it, to me, it's very compelling. It resonates with me, the argument that everything that seemed supernatural that was explained, you could go through each of the ten plagues. You go through the splitting of the sea, has to be explainable according to the rules of nature. Now, by the way, as you were just saying, just because it's explainable according to the rules of nature, does that mean that it's nature alone that had the timing for the sea to split right as the Jewish people approached it with the Egyptians behind them? Or the ten plagues, even if each of them were explainable according to the rules of nature, is it statistically significantly likely 
that the ten would happen in the close succession, all in the same place at the same time, in the context of a Jewish people trying to be free with an individual Moshe warning that they're about to happen. So again, yes, it's overwhelmingly compelling that there is a divine coordinator to it, but there has to be that sliver of possibility of explaining it according to the rules of nature in order to be able to preserve God's concealment, which is a necessary prerequisite to the meaning of our life so that we can have free will. Okay, but we're not talking about this either. How come it hasn't happened again? What? Also, can be explainable in the natural order. Even the Mephoshim themselves right there try to... Uh, first of all, we have eclipses and we have, we have all kinds of things that the natural order that, that can make it... Uh, you can explain it. But we're not, we have to start the class because it's getting really late. Yeah. You know, it says that Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, tell the children to go forth. Right. And then He says, lift up your staff. He doesn't say lift up your staff Interesting. and then tell them to yeah. go yeah. forth. Which highlights what you're yeah. saying. So the water crashes down on the Egyptians. Even that, what, is, what, is, what should be our reaction? It's another, I'm giving you a list of topics we're not talking about. Got to keep you coming back. But what should be our reaction to the downfall of our enemies? This is the, this is the proof text for this conversation. So of course, there's a distinction between the people who themselves are saved and the spectators. God is critical of His angels. You're not allowed to sing Shira. My creation is drowning. I don't care how evil they are. They're my creation. He doesn't criticize the people themselves who sing. If you are saved, you have a right. You're entitled to sing. But if you're a spectator to it, an observer to it, then you are not entitled because after all, it's God's creatures. So what should be our reaction? I spoke about this at a drusha on Pesach. When, during the Intifada, when, uh, you know, our boys would go into, uh, soldiers would go in, and you'd hear language from people, let them kill them all, level them all, take them all out, who cares how many civilians die? It was not a popular drush. I got a lot of criticism from people. It was on Pesach, when we don't say the full hollow all of Pesach, for this very reason. And I said, even when it's necessary to eliminate, to take someone out, to destroy an enemy, we should do it with great reverence and awe. We should recognize this is still God's creature. We should not hesitate to call evil what it is. It's evil, but we shouldn't celebrate and we shouldn't take joy in the downfall of an enemy. But anyway, then of course they burst out in Az Yashir, which we say every day. The women sing Miriam and her entourage. And then right away, it doesn't take long till the Jewish people are complaining. The man falls uh, from heaven. God responds by giving them this heavenly food. A double portion falls for Shabbos. I mentioned this whole theory about the Parshas Amun. About the Parshas Amun. Again, I'll just say this. It aggravates me like crazy to see people who come late to shul, talk all of davening, don't concentrate Shemona Esrei, and then read the Parshas Amun and think they're going to have a big school for Parnasa. The biggest school of a Parnassah, we don't need to give in to gimmicks. We don't need to follow all kinds of shortcuts, all kinds of tricks and all kinds of you know, fads. We have the ultimate prescription. It's called a relationship with God. Talk to Him directly. We have a Shemona Esrei. So people neglect what we have and turn instead, they say, Pitamak Torah on a klaf. They, da- they talk all davening and then on their way out the door leaving early, they're saying Pitamak Torah is from a klaf. Do we really think that God is going to increase their livelihood, make them prosperous because they've mumbled words that they don't understand from something that they overpaid from for, from a sofa in Israel while they neglected the critical conversation with God, which is davening itself? It's hard for me to imagine. So when I see all these emails and blogs going around, remind everyone to say Parshas Amman on Tuesday because it's a school for Parnassah, this is a big week and everyone's having problems with Parnassah, I'd rather send a daily email that says, remember to have Kavana during Shemona Esrei. <laughs> remember to concentrate in davening and not talk in davening and do an act of chesed. Remember to call out to God for His help because we shouldn't skip over the, uh, the gifts that were given and given to these fads. Okay, preparation of Shabbos. Shabbos is different. People journey from the wilderness. Again, they're thirsty. God gives them the water. Water from a rock. Not the episode of the water from a rock. A different episode. And it brings us to the topic I want to talk about for our class today. Which is Amalek. The story of Amalek. Right. Right, this week's Parsha has Parsha's Haman and Parsha's Haman. Very nice, Moshe Leib. Well done. That's British humor for you right there. Okay. At its best. Haman and Haman. So look at that uh, page. 
391 in the stone Chumash. And uh, for those following in a Mikros Gedolos, which is preferable, it's Perak Yudzayin, chapter 17, Pasuk Zion. We're going to start from verse 7. Perak Yudzayin, chapter 17, verse Zion, verse 7. I'm going to start from 7. 7. When the Jewish people conclude, when they complain about the lack of food, and God responds with uh, man and with water, so that this uh, narrative concludes, Masa Umiriva. The name of the place is called Masa Umiriva. Why? Al Riv B'nei Yisrael. What's a Riv? Quarrel, the fight, the contention, dispute, dispute of the Jewish people. Miriva is from Riv. V'al Nasosam Es Hashem and because they tested God, and they said, Hayesh Hashem Im Ayin. Is God in our midst or not? So the name of the place itself became um, Masa Umariva. It's interesting how the Pasuk reverses it. If it's called Masa Umariva, first give me the reason for the name Masa, then give me the reason for the name Mariva. But it reverses the order. It reverses the order. I won't get into that, I just want to draw your attention. Again, the goal of our class is a text-based class. I want to make that clear to everyone and those listening at home. Because... Everyone looks for something different out of a Parsha class. So, and I know Rabbi Moskowitz gives a different style uh, Parsha class, which is also valuable. We'll, maybe we'll start doing that next year. But it's text-based. We're trying to examine the text and ask questions and understand the way different commentators um, approach the text. So that's something to see that's inconsistent. Masa Umariva, and then Riv B'nai Israel and Naso Sam. Oh, good. So that's one possible answer, right? It's a, it's a it's a it's a poetic, a literary device. It's a literary device that you switch the order. It gives it gives a neat bookends to it. Okay, symmetry. That's the word. Was it two places called uh, Mariva? Because Moshe Rabbeinu was punished because of the Mariva. Yeah, May Mariva. Yes. Yeah. Was there two places? Yeah, it's a good question. So Masa Mariva. So why were it's called? They tested God. Now that in itself is is incredible. It's incredible. They just saw incredible miracles. Maybe miracles that can be explained naturally, like we just said, but they saw miracles, the hand of God. Ten, after more than 200 years of servitude, suffering, oppression, persecution, they've just been freed through, through ten plagues. Just when they thought all hope was lost, the sea splits in front of them, drowns their tormentors, and now all of a sudden they're complaining. And it's not just they're complaining because they're hungry and they're thirsty. What was at the root of their complaint? Is there a God <coughs> in our midst? Or not? Or not? Maybe they heard of Abotheas, who said that he always had to challenge God. No? Um, <laughs> is that question about God's there? No, but then you have to assume that he's there. Correct. No, no. What Rabbi Abotheas said, and I happen to agree with him, is... We have precedent for challenging God when we perceive an injustice. This is not challenging a perceived injustice. It's, perceived, it's challenging your stomach. You're hungry, you're thirsty, so you say, I don't know if there's a God. I just went through incredible miracles. I don't know if there's a God. Now, why did I start with that Pasuk? Because it's an important segue into the, this last few verses of our Parsha, which is what I want to concentrate on. Why am I looking at this? Amalek came and fought with the Jewish people in Rifidim. Let's read the whole section, it's short, and then we'll go back and ask our questions. Um, so Moshe turns to Yeshua. Right, again, this is a slave nation. They're just being born. Go form an army, form a military. We've got to go fight. And here's the role I'm going to play. I'm going to go stand on top of a mountain, holding on to the staff of God. Yoshua did what Moshe said, to fight with Amalek. Who's Chur? Miriam's son. Miriam's son. Who else's son? Who was Miriam married to? Kalev. Miriam is married to Kalev. Ben Yifuna. One of the spies. Miriam is married to Kalev, and they have a son, Chur. That's significant. We'll get back to it. So Moshe, Aaron, and Chur go on top of the mountain. 
When Moshe will raise his hand, the Jewish people will. There's a great song by the London School of Jewish Song. song. Everyone knows the song. And when Moshe lowers his hands, then the Amalek will be victorious, will triumph. (coughs) So, Videi Moshe Kvedim, what happens? The war starts. Now, you know, raise your arms. See how long you can hold them there. At first, it feels like nothing. After. Two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, an hour. Moshe's arms start to get heavy. They take a stone, they put it underneath Moshe for him to sit on. And it's good that he's got backup. Aaron and Chur on either side are holding up his arms. Translate those words. His hands in faithful prayer until sunset. Well, it doesn't say prayer. Sarah's right. It says, Vihi yadav emuna. His hands were faithful until sunset. Oh, it's a shadow. What? Yeah, in Tanakh, when he uses the term Hashemesh, it's like a euphemism. It means sunset. It means sunset. So, the hands are held until, this, until sunset. Vayachaloshi Yoshua Samalik Vyasamolifikharev. Translate that. No. Weakened. Correct. Now was specific. We did not defeat Amalek. Yeshua was not successful in defeating Amalek. He weakened Amalek. God says, I want to memorialize this. Write it in the book. What book? Okay. And place it in the ears of Joshua. Not the book. That would hurt. But... Talk about this in the years of Yeshua. <coughs> Why? Put it in the ears of Moshe and write it in a book. Because I'm going to surely erase the memory of Amalek. From where? Where does the memory of Amalek live? Where's Tachas Hashemayim? Under the heavens. And he gives it a name, God is my miracle. The hand of God is on the throne of God. The hand is on the throne of God. Hashem maintains a war against Amalek. When? From generation to generation. Okay, this is a kind of ambiguous story. What exactly is going on here? I have a million questions. Let me hear yours. Yes. How come... We were scared. We couldn't go out of Egypt the the normal route because we were scared we'd come across the Pelishtim and we'd have to fight war, right? But here we don't seem to be scared that we're having to go to war. Well, we don't have a choice here. Here, Amalek approaches us. So we didn't have a choice. We had to respond. What are your questions? Any text-based questions? Uh, I have a question about the Adave Munah. Yeah. Okay, so that's clearly a phrase which we don't. It's very. Uh, if difficult phrase, what does that mean? And his hands were emuna. His hands were faithful. Okay, well, it's an unusual, it's an unusual expression. We're going to have to get into it. But Okinos translated is like a shadow. Unclus. Okay. Okay. Right. Yes. Think of prayer as hands together, but his hands are apart. Right. And doesn't that have some? Isn't that how the Kohanim blessed? Yes. Yes. Okay. So we'll get that back to that phrase. We'll try to explain that phrase. What does Moshe call Yoshua? Yo- his loyal servant. What does he call him? It's not a trick question. El Yoshua. Why does that bother you? Anything bother you about that? What? About the name itself. Yeah. He's Hoshea at this point. What do you mean? We're going to read later the story of the Maragam, the spies, how he was Hoshea bin Nun. And before that mission, he was given an extra letter to his name. So why is Moshe already calling him Yoshua? Why is the Torah referring to him as Yoshua when he has not yet been given that name? Let's go back even further. Vayavo Amalek. Anything bother you about that term, Vayavo? Out of nowhere. It's in contrast. Yeah, where they come from? No, no, because they had said, Hashem 
So to, you know, to sort of punish them. Oh, don't give an answer yet, but what's the question? What bothers you? Vayavo is an unusual term. Usually when the Torah describes a war with an enemy, what does it say? Vayetzei, so-and-so. An enemy went out to go attack us. Why here does it say Vayavo? Instead of, right, it should have said Vayetzei Amalek. Amalek went out to wage battle with the Jewish people. What do you mean, Vayavo Amalek? They came to wage battle. Oh, hold your answers, hold the answers. <laughs> so, Vayavo is a question. Is there significance to this place, Rifidim? Why does it give us the name of where the battle is, Rifidim? Moshe calls Yoshua, choose men, fight with Amalek. Why is Moshe going on top of a mountain? It's kind of a strange place for the general, for the commander-in-chief to be. And what's the significance of his hands? What's the significance of Moshe, Aaron, and Chur? Why do you need three? It's usually Moshe and Aaron. Who's Chur? Where did he come from? What do the hands have an impact? You raise hands, you win a war. You lower the hands, you lose a war. <coughs> oh, okay, everyone's giving answers. All the answers. And why? Why are we? When it says write this episode, Ksov Zos Zikaron Basefer, write it in a book. Anyone have a copy of the book? What book? Which book was Moshe to write about this story, about this episode? In and furthermore, Moshe Vayivan Moshe Mizbeach. Moshe builds an altar to memorialize this experience. Why memorialize this experience? Why this experience? Of all experiences. He didn't memorialize the ten plagues. He didn't memorialize the splitting of the sea. He didn't build a Mizbeach after seeing these other things. What is it about this experience that Moshe responds by building a Mizbeach? And I will say moreover. Moreover. You build a Mizbeach when you weren't even victorious? Vayachalosh. Yoshua es Amalek. Amalek weakened. Yoshua weakened Amalek. He didn't destroy them. And by the way, by that same token, I'll just say, the beginning of next week's Parsha, Yisro, Moshe's father-in-law, Vayishma Yisro, Yisro heard something that made him come to join the Jewish people. Mashmu Hashama Uba, Gemara and Zvachim asked, what did he hear? And the Gemara and Zvachim records a three-way debate what he heard. What did he hear that made him come? Did he hear the splitting of the sea? Did he hear about the war with Amalek? Or did he hear about the receiving of the Torah at Har Sinai? So that's a big debate, the Gemara and Zvachim. What is it that Yisro heard? But let me ask you a question. Let's say, according to the opinion Yisro heard about this war with Amalek, what impressed him about the war with Amalek? They didn't win. He heard about the war with Amalek and he said, I got to join that people? Why would he be running to join a people that didn't even win a war? Go join Amalek. Join the side that held out. Vayachalosh, he weakened him, but he didn't win. So what's the significance of Vayachalosh, of having weakened him? Excellent. Good. And what does it mean that God says, I'm going to destroy the memory of Amalek? Destroy Amalek. What do you mean, Zecher? What, what was the question? She's saying, why is it Zecher Amalek? Why is God bent on destroying the memory of Amalek? Destroy Amalek himself. Right. And why is God obsessed? Why is, you know, Amalek is this perpetual enemy door door? He is, uh, keeps revisiting us. Yes. Right. Memory, right. Right. Okay, good. Good, good. So those are answers already. And I'll ask you a final, a final question. A final question is, why mitachas hashemayim? No other enemy of ours do we describe as trying to eliminate or be victorious of. Where? Under the heavens. What do you mean under the heavens? What does that mean? You're going to eliminate the memory of Amalek under the heavens, but above the heavens they're going to continue to remember him? In space, NASA will remember Amalek, but we down here will forget. What's this mitacha sashamayim? It's a kind of peculiar expression. So these are a series of many, many questions. Many, many questions, and I want to try to examine them together with you. We've got 15 minutes. We got 15 minutes, okay. And now we begin 16. And why is the verse before Amalek never really answered? Okay. Why is it right on the heels? Good, so all of this is by way of introduction. Now we start the class. Pasuk, look at Rashi. Rashi and Pasuk Ches. 
ויבוא עמלק. סמך פרשה זו למקרא זה, לומר, תמיד אני ביניכם ומזומן לכל צרכיכם, ואתם אומרים היש השם בקרבנו עם עין. חייכם שהכל אבו ונושך אתכם, ואתם צועקים לי ותדעו היכן אני. God said, why is this connected to the previous Pasuk? Because God said, you asked, is there God in our midst? Vayavo Amalek. Amalek's coming in response to that question. True, normally an enemy, it says, Vayetze, an enemy goes out to wage war. But in this case, Vayavo Amalek. Amalek is coming, not going out. What are they coming? What was the invitation? Who extended an invitation to Amalek? The Jewish people did. Because when they challenged and doubted God and said, Is God in our midst or not? You want the answer? Here's Amalek. It's a parable of a person who puts their child on their shoulders and goes out. So the kid says to the father, Look, there's a dollar on the floor. Can you pick it up? So the father picks it up, gives it to the kid. The second time and the third time. And then they're still walking, and the kid sees a friend and he says, Have you seen my father? Father says, You don't know where I am? He's sitting on my shoulders. He throws him off of his shoulders and a dog comes along and bites the kid. <coughs> Excuse me. So God carries us on his shoulders. What's the parable? What's the metaphor of being carried on the shoulders? Above danger. Above the elements. And here we are on the shoulders giving us treasure after treasure that we ask for. And we say, has anyone seen my dad? God says, that's, that's what you ask? Okay, get off my shoulders. And now that you're on the ground, you're going to get bit by a dog, by a rabid dog. But look at the Sif Sechachamim. Sif Sechachamim is bothered. Again, Sif Sechachamim is a super commentary on Rashi, always asking the question, what was bothering Rashi? How did Rashi arrive at this? Rashi normally only will talk about the juxtaposition of sections of the narrative if they're out of order. Rashi doesn't normally ask, why is this section after this section? Sif Sechachamim is teaching us something about Rashi's methodology. Rashi only asks, why, are, why is it in this order? When there's a reason to believe it's out of order. And if that's the case, why is Rashi making any comments here? It's not out of order. So the criteria to Gur Arye, Sif Sechachamim quotes the Gur Arye. Who wrote the Gur Arye? Maharal of Prague, of Yudaloi of Prague. He wrote it as a super commentary on Rashi. So So why is Rashi commenting if it's out of character for him? He normally comments only when it's out of order. Here it's in order. So why is he speaking to the juxtaposition of the verses? So the Maharal explains because it should have said Every other war in the Torah says Vayetze, they went out to attack us. Why does it say Vayavo, they came to attack? So Rashi understood that the Torah uses Vayavo to link it to the verse that came before to say this is a response. Amalek's visit is a response to the question of is God in our midst or not? So Rashi was compelled to explain the juxtaposition of the verses even though they're not out of order which is out of character for Rashi because of the question of Vayetze versus Vayava. Fine. Fine. So that was point number one. The Sephorna, Rav Avad Yisphorna says Vayava Amalek what were they coming what were they responding to? Lekol Meriva V'tzimaon Svarno is looking at it in a much more practical sense. Not a metaphysical, spiritual war, but practically. Amalek heard, oh, this new people that just got out of Egypt, that God performed all these miracles for? I just read on the internet that they're complaining already. They're thirsty. They're hungry. So what did Amalek say? Now's my time to strike. They're thirsty. They're hungry. And indeed, that's what the Torah describes. Ayef v'yageya. In Dvarim later, when it describes this battle with Amalek, it says, Yata Yefi Ageya. 
Amalek chose when to attack when the Jewish people were tired, they were spent, when they were exhausted. How did he know that? Because they revealed it through their complaints. When he heard, this is a complaining people, he knew they were vulnerable. Well, why would he, just because of that, why would he want to attack them? We'll talk about that in a second. Why do Amalek specifically target the Jewish people and want to attack? But if for no other reason than they're evil. I mean, I'll tell you a very good reason for their wanting to attack. This new nation is born, and they purport to be the chosen nation. God's on their side. He's great, performed great miracles. In order to put them on a pedestal, the Amalek says, you know what? I'm going to knock them right off that pedestal. I'm going to show them they're not a chosen people. They're not God's people. Who do they think they are? They're, not, they're no more distinguished than anyone else. And once it's time to attack when they're most vulnerable, because they've revealed they've just been complaining. How did Amalek find out? How did Yisra find out? The internet. Yes. They have a camel. Uh, camel Express. Israel took out of Egypt. They were loaded with gold and jewels. That could also be. Yeah, good point. Rechush Gadol. They left with a lot of value. Maybe they wanted to go after their money. Not only that, even the Jews were, were threatening Aparo. Even Paro was afraid of them. Their, their might and everything. So. Okay. Wasn't Amalek a great great? Yes. Yes. Look at the Orachayim HaKadosh Orachayim Ben-Atar. We're going to run out of time and there was so much to talk about here. But look at the Orachayim. The Orachayim says, again, so I just want to show you three different interpretations of why the word Vayava. So I'm trying to show you that when you have an unusual word in the text, commentators are equally bothered by it and they're trying to understand the link from what came before. So for Rashi, the link is you just complained and asked, is God here? So God's going to show you, you you took for granted when I was here, I'm going to show you what it's like when I step aside. This Svarna says, no, that's not what it's about. But Eva Amalek, they came to attack. Why? Because they, you just finished complaining, you're hungry and you're tired. You revealed to your enemy that you're vulnerable. Your enemy took advantage. They came and they attacked. The Orachayim has a different interpretation, which is consistent with the Orachayim's methodology, with his approach. Orachayim is based in Kabbalah and mysticism. So he writes, why did Amalek attack? Because when you said, I'm thirsty, water is a great symbol in Judaism. Gemara and Tainus, Daf Zion says that water is, is the symbol of Torah. Torah is, water is a metaphor for Torah. Water flows, we can't live without water, water nourishes and sustains. Water, the great story of Rabbi Akiva, that a drop of water dripping on a rock, the hardest substance, can penetrate and break the rock. Water is used metaphorically over and over again for Torah. So the Rechaim says when they said they were thirsty, it wasn't about water. They were lazy. They neglected their Torah study. They were abandoning the Torah values. And when they did that, that's what makes you vulnerable for the attack of a Amalek. When you neglect Torah... When they, got, when they complained about Mayim, now they got the Melcham Shal Amalek, they got the war with Amalek. So again, you just see Rashi, the Sforna, the Orachayim, all approach it in different ways. But let's keep going, let's look at some of our other questions. Bechar Lanu, the Torah said, Moshe says to Yeshua, choose men. Who are these men? <coughs> First of all, Rashi makes a great point. Li Valach, Hishvah Moshe said, choose Lanu. Moshe could have said, Bechar Anashim. Nobody asked this question of the text. Moshe could have said, Bechar Anashim, choose men. Why does he say, Bechar Lanu? Choose for us. Who's us? Moshe, you're the leader. Who's Yoshua? He's a lowly, he's a lowly apprentice. So Rashi picks up on this. And he says, you see, when Moshe elevated Yeshua by saying, us, you should honor your student as you do yourself. Seek your student's honor as you seek your own honor. Rashi goes on and on about these teachings, but the theme of all the teachings is, we should never feel above. We should never feel holier than. We should never feel more distinguished than someone else. We should seek to make someone else feel good, that I'm not any different, we're on the same level. Look what Moshe did, did so, in such a nuanced way. 
lanu on Hashem. He says, Yoshua, do me a favor. Go choose for us men. What do you mean us? You're the general. You're the commander-in-chief. You're sending him on this mission. What do you mean choose for us? But by doing that, he elevated Yoshua's stature and showed him great honor. Lesson in mentoring. Lesson in mentoring, absolutely. Maybe that's why you call him Yoshua. Lesson in mentoring. That's why you call him Yoshua, then. You emphasize his point. Oh, maybe. We'll see in a moment. Bechal lanu anashim. Who are the men that he is to go get? Giborim v'yirei chet shetei zchusa mesayam. Go choose men of distinction who have fear of sin. What? I mean, could you imagine the Israeli army puts out a uh, call? We need, we have a tough war we're about to fight. We need really righteous people. We need really smart Torah learners. We need people who have the most kavan and davening. That's Bechar Lano Anashim, Yechidim, distinguished men. That's what, what is it about this war that needs those type of men? <coughs> what is it about this war that needs those type of men? Oh, okay, good. So we'll see that in a moment. So look at the Ramban. The Ramban, Nachman, is Vayomer Moshe Yeshu. He picked up on the point I mentioned earlier. Seems that Moshe called Yoshua Yehoshua with the Yud from the time they first met. Later we see that Yoshua here is the voice of the people. With the uh, breaking of the tablets. Later when it says Yoshua was given a Yud added to his name, it is not meant to say that it happened then. It's in that context revealing to us that long ago Moshe gave the name when he first met Yehoshua, changed the name from Hosea to Yehoshua long ago. Okay? So that's the first point that the Ramban makes. <clears throat> There's more. The Ramban is longer. We don't have time to get into it. But I just wanted to draw your attention to that comment to the Ramban about the name. And again, it's just the sensitivity to the text. The Ramban was bothered by that question. How many of us have ever been bothered by that? If it's only changed later from Moshe to Yoshua, why here is Moshe calling him Yoshua? And therefore the Ramban develops his theory as to why. Moshe, Aaron, and Chur. Moshe, Aaron, and Chur all go up on the mountain. Rashi says, mm-hmm. They were fasting that day. They were fasting that day. And we learn from here the laws of a fast. That when they went up on top of the mountain, we learn from here that you need three when you go up on top of the mountain. Indeed, this is the halach in Shulchan Aruch. In Shulchan Aruch, Simen, Tuf, Resh, Yud, Tes. Tzarech, Lahamid, Echad, Liyamin, Shleach, Tzibar, Ve'echad, Lismolo. On a fast day, this is what we do on Yom Kippur. Yeah. Think about Yom Kippur. A person stands to the right and to the left, he's flagged by people, the Shlech Tibur. The one leading the davening is flagged and flanked by somebody at each side. We don't do it here. Why? What? We don't do it. I try, yeah, we do. We it. Yeah, I, I learned it from Tinek. We tried to institute it here. I think we do do it. Maybe not in the back menu. And the Mishnabura on that Simon and Shulchan says, where do we learn that from? We learn it from here. That on a fast day, like Yom Kippur, when the Jewish people have great needs and are praying for victory against a different enemy, so we are flanked on either side. Okay, that's another. Who is this Chur? Rashi himself tells us, Benash Miriam Haya, the Kalev Bala. Chur is the son of Miriam, and Kalev is her husband. Okay, let's keep going. Yes. We don't know. We have a tradition. It wasn't from the verses themselves. It wasn't from the verses themselves. Now, um, I had all these things, but I'm just trying to narrow it down. Well, what is this reference? When the war is over... Um, Place it in the ears of Yoshua. So the Rechaim says, Why didn't it say, place this in the ears of all of the Jewish people? I would think, if it's an important message, worthy of recording in a book, whatever the book may be, I would think it should be placed in the ears of all the Jewish people. <coughs> Why is Yeshua, Yoshua singled out as put this in the ears of Yoshua? So the uh, Rechaim says, 
Yoshua had the risk of being the most disheartened. He led the charge, he led the battle, and yet he was only able to weaken. He wasn't able to be victorious. So how, why would God allow his people to only be weakened, not to be victorious? Why would he allow this Russia, this evil, wicked Amalek to triumph? This was God's way of reassuring Joshua. Yoshua says to Moshe, Go whisper in Yoshua's ear, I will eliminate the memory of Amalek. Don't worry. Don't feel frustrated that you weren't fully victorious. I'm going to take care of it. But again, again you see, the Archaim was bothered, was sensitive to the text, was bothered. Why only Yoshua? Why not whisper it to everybody? So there, there's many more comments I wanted to draw out here. There's uh, Ramban, the Balatur, Midor Dor says, God will fight Amalek in every generation, but Gematria, L'Yemei HaMashiach. Dor Dor is the same Gematria as L'Yemei HaMashiach. Until Mashiach comes, we will be fighting this war with Amalek. But I want to end, not with any of the commentaries inside, but just sharing with you a thought outside. So who is this Amalek? What is the supernatural? We didn't answer most of our questions. Why are righteous people fighting this war? Why is it? It's Milchama, by the way. I didn't ask. Here's another question. The Milchama is Lashem. The last verse. Vayama kiyara keska. Milchama Lashem ba'amalek. Why Milchama Lashem? What do you mean it's a war for God? God is infinite. God is omnipotent. Why do we have to fight His wars? What is it? Milchama Lashem. Why the Lamed? It's a Milchama. It's a Milchama ba'amalek. It's a war with Amalek. Why Milchama Lashem? Yes. Oh, okay. So what's what's going on here? Why did Moshe memorialize it? What did Yisro hear about it that he was so impressed with? What's going on? So in order to understand this, you have to really see, not only this section, you have to see the story of Amalek that appears uh, in Dvarim, which is the Parsha we read in Kiseitzei, on Parsha Zachor, Shabbos Zachor. Before Purim, we read this. Of course, we read it in the Parsha itself then as well. It's Parsha Zachor. And the Torah there, when it's describing, remember what Amalek did to you when you were leaving Egypt, right now. And the Torah describes Amalek. What did they do to us? It's, a, it's chapter 25, if you want to look at it inside. Asher Korcha Baderech. It's in Dvarim. Asher Korcha Baderech. Translate Asher Korcha Baderech. This is Amalek's guilt. You know what Amalek did wrong? What Amalek did to you? What they did was Asher Korcha Baderech. Translate Asher Korcha. So Rashi there in uh, Dvarim gives three explanations of what Asher Karcha could mean. Excuse me. The first is Lashon Mikra. Karcha comes from Lashon Mikra. What's Mikra? Happenstance. Happenstance. Chance. Or a very popular word among teenagers today, random. Teenagers like to say that that's so random. It's random. It's a very popular word for teenagers. I think that's a very dangerous word. Because mm-hmm. what I'm about to talk about is that, that word is the word that's the bumper sticker of a Amalek. Mm-hmm. That word random is the motto of a Amalek. It defines a Amalek. Asher Korach HaBaderach Rashi quotes two other explanations. Kar could come from Kokor, which means cold. You are on fire. You are passionate about God. And they came out and put out your fire. A Amalek came and cooled you off. They cooled you off. You religiously were not as excited as you were. And the last possibility is Lashon Keri, Vetumah. They made you impure. They contaminated you with impurity. But it's that first explanation of Rashi, Asher Karcha Baderach. They, they made you cold. That's a philosophy, the attitude, the very theology of Amalek. And Rabbi Soloveitchik felt and explained often that Amalek is not only a genetic nation, but Amalek is a philosophy, an attitude, a way of life. And the attitude, the philosophy of Amalek is that there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no order to the universe. Amalek is unwilling to submit to a divine being and a divine will and a divine destiny. Amalek is arrogant, feels it's in control. And the world we live in is random, it's chance, it's coincidence, it's happiness. There's no order, there's no purpose, there's no meaning to that which we do and to that which happens to us. And that is the philosophy and that is the attack. When it says, Amalek vayavo Amalek lilachim and Yisrael, when Amalek came to fight with the Jewish people, it means, possibly, 
I will offer a very potentially heretical possibility. Certainly, I will let, let me stick with the... I want to be allowed back into the shul. Clearly, it means they were attacked by a Amalek. But I think it means the danger of a Amalek is not an external war. But it means internally, Vayava, within the Jewish people, came an attitude of Amalek. Within the Jewish people. What does that mean? They just saw all these miracles. They just experienced the hand of God. And you know when something incredible happens, there's a piece of you that says, did that really just happen? There's that voice of doubt that says, maybe, maybe you shouldn't be so on fire, religiously motivated. Maybe everything's not as simple as it seems. Maybe God doesn't really exist. There's that voice of doubt that comes and challenges at the moments of our greatest height. The Vayavo Amalek, that Amalek came, is not necessarily an external, not only, I should say, an external enemy, but it's an internal voice of doubt that says, maybe this is all Mikra. Maybe it's just chance, these ten plagues. Maybe it's random, the splitting of the sea. Maybe it's happenstance that we were just freed. It's that voice of Amalek that comes inside. The Rambam Maimonides in his Laws of Prayer, Hilchos says that the path of tshuva is to say to ourselves that there's meaning, there's purpose, there's order. To submit ourselves to God and recognize He is controlling the destiny. And that's what the Rambam writes. This is the path of tshuva. I'll read it to you in English. When a difficulty arises and people cry out to God and sound the trumpets, everyone realizes that the difficulty has arisen because God prescribed it as a wake-up call for us. And what's the converse, the Rambam continues? Aval, el those who say, This is just chance. We're not going through this right now. So many people suffering, so much illness, so much challenge, so much economic recession. There's no meaning to it. It's chance. This is called keri. This is called mikra. This is called amalek. To live with doubt. To say everything is random and everything is chance and there's no meaning and there's no order to the universe is the attitude of amalek. And this undermines our relationship with Hashem. It undermines our very expre- uh, understanding or submission to divine providence in our lives. The Ramban, Rabbeinu Bechaya, we don't have time now, I spoke about it at Shabbat two years ago, both talk about God interacts with us directly proportional to the invitation we extend to Him. When we see His hand in our life, God wants to take better care of us. And when we deny God's existence, and we think everything's random, God says, you're on your own. You're subject to the elements. Good luck. You're on your own. <coughs> So what's really happening in this passage and what can answer all of our questions is not only the external battle, but the internal battle, the battle with doubt, the battle of what I would describe as illusion versus reality. Remember the movie The Matrix? Anyone see the movie The Matrix? So this world we live in is an illusion. We think we're in control. We think it makes sense. We think there are explanations. But there is a reality that we're only a matrix. And God, the divine hand, the divine programmer, is the one who's in control. And that's why God says, I need to macho emche, I will erase the memory of Amalek. Where? Mitachas HaShemayim. It's in that world of illusion that I need to show them the reality. One day, Yemosa Mashiach in the world to come, when God will be fully revealed. And that's why God says, this is a battle, midor dor ki yara ka. And Rashi says, if you look at case, it's the word kisei, incomplete, it's missing the aleph. God's throne is incomplete because of that pesti amalek. What does that mean? That God will spend forever fighting this amalek who make him incomplete from generation to generation until the time of Mashiach. What does that mean? What that means is that for every step we take closer towards believing and acknowledging and submitting to God, God's throne is incomplete because He still has to deal with that voice of doubt. That voice of randomness, that voice of chance and coincidence and happenstance. And that battle will rage within our minds, within the Yetzirah, within our fight, midor door, in perpetuity until God will ultimately one day fully reveal His hands and Himself to us. Amalek and the war with Amalek is the war of reality versus illusion. It's not to subscribe to the illusion of this world, but it's to recognize the metaphysical reality 
of a world that includes God. This war only exists mitachas shemayim. Once we get to shemayim, there's no amalek, there's no war, there's no doubt. The only place that doubt can influence is mitachas shemayim, and that's why the Torah uses that language. So going back to answer our questions. Vayavo amalek, it makes sense. Right after the Jewish people say, Hayesh Hashem bekirbeinu emayin. Is God in our midst? In other words, yes, we just felt the hand of God. Yes, we just saw all these miracles. But... Right when we have our highest heights is when we get challenged with the greatest moment, that voice of doubt that says, maybe it's just chance. Maybe it's not all real. Maybe it's counterfeit. Vayavo Amalek. Amalek came into their heads at that moment. And therefore they fight. So this is a war you don't fight with, with warriors. It's a war you fight with righteous people who go out to the people and remind them. No. This is, of course, subscribe to the reality, not to the illusion. This is a war where Moshe raises his hands. Why? What's the symbolism of Moshe raising his hands? He's pointing to God. When, that's what the Torah says. When his hands are pointed heavenward, they win. And when they fall, they lose. What does that mean? It means when the people look towards heaven and realize everything that happens to us is from Hashem, they've won that war by definition. And when his hands are lowered and they say, no, it's all chance and random and it's just this world, then by definition they've lost that war. So it's not. The Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah asked this question. Do raising hands win or lose a war? True. In the war in Afghanistan, you're not going to win or lose because Obama or any other general raises or lowers their hands. But in this metaphysical war, in the war of reality versus illusion, in the, rea- in the war of doubt versus knowledge, looking up versus looking down is the very definition of the war. Vayichalosh Yehoshua. Yehoshua didn't eliminate Amalek. He weakened him. Because this is a battle we continue to fight until today. And this is a battle worth memorializing. And God says, I will erase Amalek, but where? Mitachas HaShemayim. Amalek can only rule. Mitachas HaShemayim. That's where I have to eliminate them. So this is a battle that still continues to be fought and continues to be fought physically. Haman, Hitler, Yamach Shemo, Ahmadinejad, these are Amalekis. But it also continues to be fought within our own mind, in our own battle of randomness, chance, happenstance, doubt, illusion versus reality. I close by telling you one final thought. This is a, one of my favorites. Moshe, Aaron, and Chur go to the top of the mountain. The Or Gedal Yahu, Rav Gedal Yashur, explains so beautifully. He says, Moshe was the leader. He was on top. But he needed, his arms could only be supported if he had Aaron and Chur helping him. They got heavy. That leadership gets heavy, it weighs on you, it's hard. What do Aaron and Chur represent? So Rav Gedai Shur says they represent the diversity of the Jewish people. Aaron represents, for lack of a better term, he is the left. He is, Oev Shalom, Verodev Shalom, peace now, peace, pursuing peace. Who is Chur? How does Chur get killed, anyone remember? At Diego, when they're building the golden calf, Chur is a zealot. He represents the right. Zealousness and, and fighting for truth and, and not, not, not fearful for conflict when it's warranted. Sort of Gedai Ashur says, Moshe is flanked by Aaron and Chur. The Oev Shalom, Rodev Shalom on one side, Chur who is the Kanai on the other side, because the, you have midterms? I'm finishing. The leader, the, the leader Moshe, in order to lead effectively, needs to have the totality of the Jewish people needs to have the left and the right, needs to have the different perspectives, all supporting Moshe's raising his arms, because when both perspectives and sides are willing to say, it's Yarim Moshe es Yadav, it's about heaven, it's about Hashem ultimately, then everyone can work together as a team and to be successful. Have a good job. Yes. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-